according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we have just a couple of details left on uh, verses 10 through 17. And then we'll be ready to take a look at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven uh, in verses 18 through 21. That should go very quickly as well because those, both those parables have already been covered in, during the Galilean ministry when they were featured in the famous uh, parables of the kingdom out of Matthew chapter 13. So uh, Luke's record of those messages is deferred until this event. And uh, as such, we've already gone through the doctrine that pertains to those messages, but we can take the time to review them and uh, make sure we're solid before we before we proceed. Let's start with a word of prayer to make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is a privilege and blessing to assemble together today. We thank you for this time. And Father, we thank you for the example that we have here of this woman and her faith and the, the blessing that was done on her behalf. Father, I uh, pray that we might glean the lessons we need to learn. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Got the software running. I didn't get my slideshow running. What am I teaching today? Corinthians? No. Life of Christ. There we go. Life of Christ. That's the wrong slideshow. woman healed. There we go. Okay. I did that last week too, didn't I? Luke 13, 11. There was a woman, well, verse 10, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And you can see this coming a mile away because it's happened several times already. Sabbath day, what are they going to complain about? And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double. And could not straighten up at all. So we have five things total that we're going to glean out of this. First of all, Dr. Luke is the author of this epistle, uh, author of this gospel. And he's providing a very vivid diagnosis for her condition. Some of the vocabulary and terminology here is very medical, very consistent with uh, Galen, Hippocrates, some of the other Greek authors from the ancient world. Her sickness, though, we wanted to highlight this. Her sickness was a spiritual sickness. It says very clearly, uh, Numa ecusa asthenias. She had a Numa, a spirit of sickness, a spirit of weakness. All right. So it's not a physical disease. It is a spiritual affliction that is manifested in her body, but it is not a physical sickness. And we spent some time to, to highlight that last week. A spiritual sickness with a physical manifestation, the fact that she was bent double and unable to stand up. She required freedom as well as healing. Before he heals her, before he lays hands on her, we notice the order on this. He calls her over in verse 12 and says, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he had done nothing for her body at that point. Uh, he will uh, remedy her bodily condition um, Right after that, in verse 13, he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the freedom that she needed first preceded the physical uh, healing uh, to her body. So she required freedom as well as healing. And we outlined for you the verb tenses, which were very vivid in the sense of the perfect tense, uh, perfect passive indicative of Apalua. You have been released you have been released. The language in verse 16 mentions both the verb Satan has bound her for 18 long years and the noun bondage or bonds uh, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day. So 
Clearly, as we've taught in the past, of course, demons cannot possess a believer, cannot control your mind, cannot take over custody of your body because uh, for several different reasons, as we've taught. But the uh, affliction that is allowed under certain conditions of permissive will, when uh, Paul was given the thorn in the flesh or when Job was afflicted from head to foot, when Saul was afflicted with torments, See, um, where, you know, David was brought in to play his harp and to to soothe uh, Saul's um, uh, anxieties during such time. Uh, God, under permissive will, will allow for fallen angels and demons to afflict believers consistent with his purpose for their testing. And uh, for this woman, it was testing that lasted 18 years. Uh, That's a lot longer than most of us are willing to put up with anything. (laughs) Right. I lost my coffee. I think it's in the little room in there, would you? Okay, thank you, Doug. Couple, you've got to be in fellowship when you teach, and you've got to have coffee. And those are the two items. That's right. <laughs> All right. But she requ- the, the, the order on this is what we highlighted. The freedom came first, and then the healing to her body. The perfect tense is very vivid in that you have been released. And then the aorist tenses at work when he lays hands on her. And uh, immediately she straightens up. She was not able to do that before. Thank you. All right. Got my coffee. Now I just got to get in fellowship. Joking, joking. Okay. Also, there's a very vivid, imperfect tense that follows the aorists involved. And I don't think I stress that as much, but... um, the perfect tense of you have been released and then the aorist of laying on of hands and the aorist of made erect again, but then glorifying God, glorifying God is put in an imperfect. And what distinguishes between the aorist and the imperfect is that the aorist is a point, but the imperfect is a line. The imperfect is continuous action. And so she was continually glorifying God. Um, you might have in italics, you might have the word began glorifying God as a way that the translators attempt to show a longer process that from this moment forward, that from this day forward, she was a glorifier based upon what was done on her behalf. I believe this is part of the evidence of her salvation. This is a part of the um, uh, testimony that she is, in fact, a believer in addition to her being called a daughter of Abraham. All right. LaRosa, I think that just needs to be put on AV3 on that channel. Okay. Secondly, we had to take a look at this angry synagogue official. Synagogue official is an arch, archisundagogos, and he is angry. And so his anger prompts an answer. So then answered the angry Archisunagogos, Apocrites Deha Archisunagogos uh, Agonocton. Anyway, there's alliteration in the Greek text that grabs your attention. So I put alliteration in the English text to grab your attention. But the angry Archisunagogos. Now this guy is himself not a teacher. The position of ruler of the synagogue or um, uh, keeper of the synagogue, I guess he could teach, but his primary function is more what we would think of today in a, in a deacon role, that he uh, he makes sure the place is unlocked, he makes sure the place is available, He he uh, he's a caretaker, a keeper of the facility in the synagogue there where they, uh, where they meet. It may be that he would do some teaching as well, but it is not a rabbi position, it is a uh, support position there. And he's very angry, and he tells them, come back in any other day of the week except this day. There are six days which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. Anyway, we went through that and gave some detail as well. Why is it that a work of God that causes a believer to glory would cause this guy to grow angry, to revile the things that are taking place. In verse 15, Jesus labeled all such synagogue attitudes as hypocritical. He says, you hypocrites, plural. He's not just addressing the one archisunagogos there. There's an attitude behind that that would include all the Pharisees, would include others as well that shared this idea that um, that a work of God, a miracle, a work of power was somehow violating the Sabbath. 
Never mind, of course, the fact that God is the one that's empowering the miracle. God's the one that's doing the work. So if there's a Sabbath, if there's Sabbath breaking going on, then you've got to blame God because God's the one that supplied the power to, to provide the healing in this, uh, in this circumstance. And yet they treat their animals better than they treat their Bible students as uh, he rebukes them here. And you have an ox or a donkey. Don't you untie them from the stall on the Sabbath? You take them away, you water them, you feed them. And uh, you treat your animals better than you treat the people that come to this synagogue. All right, the angelic conflict information under point four. This woman has been under satanic bondage for 18 years. And some of the things that we will evaluate in upcoming angelic conflict classes will include this very aspect. What power does Satan have? How does the spiritual realm... um, Don't do that. How does the spiritual realm... No, remind me again in one day. Why does it do this? There we go. Okay. What was I saying? We need to study how does the spiritual realm interact with the physical realm? How is it? What should we be on guard against? What do we need to understand in our role as, as in our soldier function? We, have, we put our armor on, but could we be under attack? Could we be afflicted? Could we be bent and double? Uh, what kind of bonds would be applied, for example? Are they, you know, are they uh, earthly handcuffs? What, what kind of bonds are they? What is the issue of binding? And, and do we interact with it? And we're going to find, as we study the vocabulary, as we study the concepts out, that you and I have a very active binding activity that's expected when Christ promised the disciples, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. How do we apply that? Do we apply that only with respect to the physical realm, only with respect to humanity? Well, the context of that passage has both earth and heaven in its, in its scope. So what do we do then with this binding and loosing? And why is it identical to this language here? Binding and loosing here. He told her, you have been loosed. Apoluo, that's our term. And uh, she has been under bondage. The verb is deo, number 1210. The noun is desmos, number 1199. And so when we take the time to study those structures, I think we'll have a clearer picture on it. But understand... um, the God of this age blinds the minds of the unbelieving. The mind, the bondage is mental. The, the, uh, the veils that are placed over the mind and over the heart are in that spiritual realm. The battlefield is the soul. All right, so let's understand the bonds that are there are soul bonds. And we'll have those things coming up because the weapons of our warfare are definitely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And that's, uh, that's going to be good to, to uh, go through in Second Corinthians. All right. Jesus's opponents. Let's, I want to spend this hour and time we have dealing with his opponents because they were being humiliated while at the same time the crowd was rejoicing. This woman actually was able to lead a worship service. And how was she able to do that? Well, she begins by glorifying. And in response to her glorifying, the crowds are going to rejoice. They're going to rejoice over all the glorious things being done by him. So he accomplished the glorious things, but she communicated those glories in her glorifying. All right. And we defined that for you last week. Remember, glorify is a communication term. Glorify is where you relate your attitude and influence other people's attitudes with respect to the things of God. So. The crowd the entire crowd, was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. But his opponents were being humiliated. What a contrast. So you say, well, that wasn't very nice. Wasn't that kind of mean? Wasn't it mean for Jesus to humiliate these opponents? Let's look at it. First of all, who are the opponents? And if they're humiliated, well then... Uh, maybe they need to be, <laughs> all right? Maybe that's part of what brings and humbles uh, the lost to a point where they understand that they need something greater than themselves. They need salvation. They're not as 
great as they think they are. All right, the opponents. The opponents, let me give you a vocabulary, subpoint A then. When we look at the opponents, we're looking at a participle. In fact, it's a present middle participle. The verb is anti-kami, A-N-T-I, anti Kami, K-E-I-M-A-I. Now, anti-Kami is a verb, which means to lie against. Kami is to lie or recline and to lie against. And it's somewhat idiomatic, so it doesn't, the, the, uh, the etymology of the components of this compound verb don't really speak to us very much. The idea of lying against doesn't sound oppositional in our way of thinking, but it did in their way of thinking. Um, but the idea, we might think of um, drawing a line in the sand and then some folks might lie on this side of the line and other folks might lie against them on the other side of the line. Okay? We don't really use the idiom the same way, but we do understand a line in the sand and, and being on opposite sides of that line okay? in an adversarial position. And that's what happens here. All right, in this case, it's not technically a noun. It's a participle being used as a noun. They are the ones that are lying against. They are the ones in active opposition. Anti-Kami. And so, not only do we have them here in uh, chapter 13 and verse 17, but they'll come up again in chapter 21. Take a look at these opponents and start to ask, do we have opponents? Is an opponent the same as an enemy? Is the opponent the same as an adversary? At what point um, is an opponent adversary uh, an enemy? Or at what point is he an opponent, but he's, you don't regard him as an enemy because he's a brother? In which case, you cannot regard him as an enemy, but must admonish him as a brother. And these are the things that when you break down the different terms, you want to understand. I think a lot of Christians pick fights with, um, with, with our own. And we're not enemies. We're brothers. And they may be opponents, but if we can win our brother back, then they're not opponents anymore. And that's, that becomes a motivation. All right, Luke 21. And this isn't a prophetic context, but, uh, and so it's pertaining to the end times, particularly Israel and the tribulation. But we can glean a secondary application for ourselves. Um, before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So when bad things happen, when you're being mistreated, when people are doing horrible things to you, recognize that if the Father is permitting it, then He has a purpose for it. And it may very well be for the purpose of your testimony. That's why we have an ambassadorial function. And it may be that our uh, persecution circumstances are such that, that he puts us in a very unique place where we can have a testimony in that, in that opportunity. So, as a consequence, in light of that, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So there's your opponents. And understand opponents at that point are indeed on the other side of this angelic conflict. All right? And when you are under that kind of affliction, when the adversary is seeking your harm, seeking your, maybe even your martyrdom, maybe even your death, and they have purposes for what they're doing. But when God permits it, He has His purposes for letting it happen. All right? Remember when, when Satan afflicted Job, Satan had a purpose for doing that. Remember? He wanted to... Uh, prove that uh, Satan was only loyal for uh, selfish reasons. He wanted to prove that Job would curse God if God afflicted him like that. That was Satan's purpose. But God let it happen for his own purpose, not for Satan's purpose. All right? So God let it happen, and then whose purpose was achieved? God's or Satan's? Obviously, God's purpose was achieved. Same thing here. So the uh, they lay hands on you, and they persecute you, and they imprison you, and and maybe they're going to execute you. If God permits it to happen, then it's a part of all things working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the opportunity for a testimony. And when he uses that, 
when he puts you in that unique place and he works through you in that unique way, it's, uh, you know, under dying grace principles, it's ministry unlike any you've ever had before and will ever have again because you're going to die here. <laughs> right. So uh, anyway, it's a neat pattern. I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So uh, we can look forward to that. And yes, I think it's pretty clear. We will have opponents. Why, why would we not have opponents? He had opponents. Are we any better than him? Uh, are, would we consider that a slave is above his master, that, that, uh, that he would have opponents and we're not going to somehow have opponents in our ministry? Come on. See the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Of course we're going to have opponents. All right. The term is also used in 1 Corinthians 16. You remember that, of course. You've memorized the whole book of 1 Corinthians 16. Or the whole book of 1 Corinthians. 16.9. Where it's not rendered opponent, it's translated adversaries. I would prefer to keep it consistent. I don't mind using the term opponent. I think it, it does communicate. Uh, adversary, I would, prepare to re- I would prefer to restrict adversary to terms that relate to Satan himself, such as Satan, Satana, the, the term adversary, which is what Satan is about. But the concept is clearly there. This is part of his travel plans, and uh, he can't leave town quite yet. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Because a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there will be many adversaries. There will be many antikamai laying on the other side ones in this endeavor. See, if uh, if there's a wide door presented and you caught on to it, <laughs> or I caught on to it, I'll admit I'm, I'm slow. I sometimes don't see things right off the bat. and go, oh, that's what's going on here. Okay, there's ministry. Let's, let's do this. Well, Generally speaking, if there's a wide open door for ministry there, do you think the adversary is unaware of it? Think the adversary knows that this ground is fertile? Of course he knows. Do you think the adversary knows that there's turmoil in the, the, the positive volition in the parts of these folks that are, that are eager for gospel hearing? Or um, the, the adversary, of course, is going to be involved when there is a wide open door for effective ministry there will be many opponents many adversaries galatians 5:17 if this word uh, helps you out maybe um this has been a bible verse of yours for many many years this is why we teach absolute spirituality you're either in fellowship or out of fellowship there's no in between you're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness you're walking by the spirit or you're walking by the flesh says, here's a promise, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. There's your verb. They are in opposition to one another. So choose you this day whom you will serve. How are you going to function? How are you going to operate on a daily basis? Filled with the Spirit? Or submitting to the flesh? That sin nature within you that wants to enslave you all over again. They're in opposition to each other. So if they're in opposition, they're not friendly. All right. Your opponents are not working on your behalf. And it may be that if you're you're faithful to do what the Father has for you to do, you also may humiliate your opponents. In fact, we're going to see one passage where you're expected to humiliate your opponents. Philippians 1.18 or 1.28. Philippians 1.28. Say, well, I don't have any opponents. I don't want opponents. I want to get along with people. Well, Scripture calls you to the battle. Scripture calls you to his side. Friendship with this world is enmity, hostility towards God. You will have opponents. Philippians 1.28 as if you uh, try to compromise and join the other side, well, then you're still going to have opponents. In fact, you're going to have a, one great big opponent. It's going to be God the Father. <laughs> All right? And Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, you're going to put yourself back in an opponent position, and there's no reason for it. You want enmity with God? There's no reason for that. All right, Philippians 1.28. 
Verse 27 says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's part of what we talked about on Sunday, this consistent walk, the, the comparable walk, worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come or see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. In no way alarmed by your opponents. So don't worry about it. I wonder if, you know, people that don't want the, they're nervous about having opponents. Don't be. Don't be. Not if you are uh, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay. There's no reason to be alarmed at your opponents at that point. The, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Understand that. Which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too is from God. The testimony, when you've got the opponents on one side and like-minded believers on the other side, you're painting a picture of destruction, salvation. See, John 3.16, you're the, you're the living testimony of that. Of course, destruction is the perishing of uh, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you recall, is the chapter where Paul details the uh, Antichrist, the day of the Lord and the, uh, the man of lawlessness that's going to be unveiled. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Remember, in 1 Thessalonians, he's already taught him about the rapture in chapter 4. He's already taught him about second advent in chapter 5. And uh, in between, or in between 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then they received this letter, supposedly had been sent from Paul, it was a forgery, sent in Paul's name, saying, um, you know, uh, I was wrong, or changed my mind, or had it wrong, uh, you've actually missed it, uh, the day of the Lord is upon us now. And they uh, they were pretty upset over the idea that, that uh, there wasn't going to be a rapture, and that they were in the day of the Lord, and that they were going to go through wrath. Uh, that was quite a, a discouraging letter to get from the Apostle Paul. So he sits down and writes Second Thessalonians to say, don't believe those kind of lies. All right? Don't, and don't be so quickly shaken from your composure when these fraudulent documents come along. So he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What's that? That's the rapture. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Episunagoge, our gathering together to him. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. See, the adversary loves to do that's his prime methodology. Quickly, 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 decide this, decide this, react to that, get scared. Quickly shaking from your composure or disturbed, right? Like a high pressure used car salesman or something. Like this deal's only good today. You can't come back tomorrow. We need the decision now. And all this high pressure. And don't think about it. Just, just sign here, kind of a thing. Okay. It's almost sounds like a political process in Washington D.C. This bill has to be passed today. It has to be passed right now. Don't take the time to read it. Either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us. See, remember, they're still in the apostolic age. They're still this is this is a, this is in the late 40s, okay, maybe early 50s A.D. They're still in the apostolic age. They've got prophets standing up. They got revelation going on as a spirit would reveal. The spirit of God would come upon them, and along with that would come these lying spirits trying to lead them astray. As if the day of the Lord has come. As if somehow you're already in the tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first. Frequently translated apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. First, uh, I've been told, Tommy Ice has told me that the first seven English translations all rendered this departure, apostasia, departure. The King James translation was the first to render it apostasy, which is a transliteration of apostasia, not a translation of apostasia. And um, English versions have had apostasy ever since. I think departure comes first, again, is a, is, a, is a reference to the rapture. The day of the Lord cannot come until the rapture, the departure, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 
You know, there's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We're all looking forward to that. But seven years prior to that will be a revelation of the Antichrist. And what does this son of destruction do? I'm taking the time to illustrate, but verse four, who opposes, who opposes. This is what he does, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And this is one item of table setting that we have not yet seen upon the earth. Uh, God does not presently have a temple on this earth. And yet, before Antichrist is unveiled, it does need to be rebuilt. That's why you know, I follow the third temple uh, efforts in Jerusalem in the news. It kind of interests me because uh, you know, they would love, Israel would love to rebuild a temple on that mount. The only problem, of course, there's a mosque sitting up there. <laughs> All right. And uh, what, what's going to have to happen in order for that mosque to come down and for a temple to go up? One little item of table setting that has not yet made it. I think uh, most of the rest of the table has been set. <laughs> this is just one last detail we're waiting to see unfold in time. So do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things and you know what restrains him now. And you'll notice it's a what restraining in verse six and it's a who restraining he who now restrains in verse seven. So it's a what in verse six and it's a he in verse seven. And we identify the, the neuter and the masculine, what and he, as being the Holy Spirit, spoken of both in the neuter gender as a pneuma and the masculine gender as a person. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken away. Then that lawless one will be revealed. See, the Holy Spirit is indwelling the church, indwelling the bride. And until the bride, the body of Christ, is removed, the uh, fraud is not permitted to be unveiled. Anyway, that's a bit more of a detail than I was going to get into, but opposition is antichrist activity. Understand that. And we deal with that every day. Even now, many antichrists have come. I'm not so worked up about the one capital A antichrist that's going to come someday. What about the many that are already here? And that spirit of antichrist that's already in the age. In fact, it runs this age. And then the final two uses of Antikamai come in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.10 and 1 Timothy 5.14. And talk about how the, uh, the purpose for the law, the law was good. If one uses it lawfully, the law was not made for righteous persons, but for this long list of people, including uh, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Opposed to sound teaching in an adversarial relationship against sound teaching. And the last use is in 514. Therefore, I want the younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house and give the opposing one, the one in opposition, the one that's lying on the other side of of the uh, ledger. Give the uh, opposing one no occasion for Reproach for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. All right, so opponents. I think as we see the uh, the the broad um, spectrum in which the term is used, that we've seen it in Christ's lifetime, we see it ahead in the tribulation, we see it in the church age. This passage here, for example, we find that this is a concept that carries across every dis- uh, dispensational boundary. So are we okay to humiliate them? Since we have opponents, Christ humiliated them. Are we going to humiliate them? And if so, how? How do we humiliate our opponents? I think we humiliate our opponents the same way he did. By staying faithful and doing what it is the Father expects for us to do. All right. Cut iskuno. This is your verb to humiliate. It is an imperfect, showing the continuous action of it. In fact, it's in parallel with the imperfect tense of her glorifying. It's in parallel with the imperfect tense of their rejoicing. We have the imperfect tense of their humiliation. Kat iskuno. K-A-T-A. Kata meaning down, or sometimes it's an intensifier. Iskuno. K-A-T-A-I-S-C-H-U-N-O. And this is the same iskuno in various 
compounds and cognate forms that's used. It is the normal word for shame. When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. When, uh, in Corinthians, where the man of sin was shamed, uh, when um, you know the sorrow that led him to repentance. Shame can be a good thing. Shame is instructive. See, shame is a tool that interacts with the human conscience of soul. And shame can be edifying if it produces the repentant response that is designed to, reprodu- to produce. Now, you don't want to uh, do so unnecessarily, excessively, and so forth. But shame has a purpose. Kat Aiskuno number 2617. And the last reference we'll see on this is in 1 Peter. And you'll see that we're going to shame our opponents the same way Christ shamed his by simply staying faithful, enduring whatever you're called upon to endure, being about your father's business. That in itself is going to shame the slanderers. 1 Peter 3.16 So this is a consequence for slanderers. That's another term for devils in the face of Christ-like behavior. 1 Peter 3.13 says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? If you're busy about your father's business, if you're doing what the father has for you to do, what can that hurt? (laughs) Right? Is there any downside to that? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I want you to understand that. This is an application for believers that are committed to engage in their soldier function in the angelic conflict. There's nothing here that has anything to do with getting saved. You can't use this in a lordship salvation kind of way that, well, you know, you're not saved until you, uh, until you uh, believe in Christ and sanctify him as Lord of your heart. I believe the, um, the attitude that's expressed here is the attitude of a believer that is willing to suffer whatever it takes to be obedient to his conflict. Um, as the Lord said, you've got to count the cost. You've got you to consider the cost before you build your tower, before you go to war, before you engage in these type of activities. And as you consider that cost, that's the moment where you sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart, where you set him apart, where you say, all right, Lord, though you slay me, yet will I trust in you. And that is a conscious decision, a volitional decision on your point when you're under fire. When a soldier comes under fire, he has to, you know, it's the fight or flight reflex in the spiritual realm. What are you going to do when an attack is coming? your way. You're going to cave, you're going to retreat, you're going to surrender, you're going to flee, or you're going to take up your armor and proceed on. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, remarkable, there it is. You got persecution, In verse 13, persecution in verse 14, persecution in the first part of verse 15. And and then how does the rest of the verse end? Being ready to give the gospel? Yeah. Is that not what we saw in those other passages? Where when you're brought before kings and governors that it may be a testimony opportunity? (laughs) Right? So, you know... It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm ready to give the gospel. I'm ready to give the gospel. I've got, I've got uh, uh, Evantel uh, cards in my, in my pocket, in my wallet, right? I, I've got uh, wordless books. I've got uh, bracelets. I'm, I'm ready to give the gospel at the grocery store, at the library, in the neighborhood, at the park, in all these friendly, uh, peaceful venues. That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is what happens when... Uh, when they come in here and shut us down and and take the pastor off to jail and tell us that we're violating hate crimes and and uh, and we come under affliction. Is Christ sanctified in our hearts at that point? Are we going to stay faithful? This passage is dealing with conflict. When we are suffering for the sake of righteousness. Okay, we're not there yet. 
We're not there yet. We have our testing in our realm of testing, absolutely. But 21st century American Christians are not suffering for their faith. And so the slanderers in verse 16. And keep a good conscience. Remember, shame interacts with the conscience facet of your soul. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered. Remember, slander is the tool, is the tool of the adversary. Slander is the, the vocabulary behind, the etymology behind the devil, the diabolos, the slanderer. Okay? And when the slanderers, the devils, are maligning you, saying all kinds of evil against you, rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. Keep a good conscience and the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You're going to humiliate your opponents just like Jesus Christ humiliated his opponents. And they slandered him as a Sabbath breaker. But in that very act, Jesus was doing what was right. In that very act, Jesus was maintaining his testimony. And the woman sure got it. The one that had been bent double for 18 years. And the whole crowd sure got it. The ones that got chewed out by the synagogue official saying, you know, come back on one of the other days of the week. Don't come here on Saturday and do that. They sure got it. They were able to glorify. They were able to rejoice. Even while his opponents were being put to shame. So we see there. It goes on. It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Good reminder there. Make sure your undeserved suffering is, in fact, undeserved suffering. If you're, if you're getting your, your divine discipline for what you've done, well, you can still accept those lumps too, repentance and humility and submit to it and so forth. And as such, God will turn cursing to blessing. But the reward is so much greater if it was undeserved suffering to begin with. And that's what takes you down through the rest of the chapter. In fact, this is the chapter that we were talking about before class. Dan and I were talking about the proclamation that he made to the spirits now in prison. Okay. Well then, we have 15 minutes remaining. Let's go back to Luke 13. And just get a start on... Event 17. Went ahead and attached the next slideshow to the end of this slideshow. I knew we wouldn't we'd be in there pretty quickly. Parables of mustard seed and leaven. We've already taught it, actually. Parables of mustard seed and leaven. There are some concepts we want to spend some time with, and since we have time, let's do it. All right, so... Verse 17, all his opponents were being humiliated. The entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So, so he was saying, it's in the, uh, it's in the uh, venue of this dichotomy. Okay? This dichotomous crowd where you've got a humiliated faction and you've got a rejoicing faction. And it seems dichotomous. It seems to be schizophrenic. And in that... In that context, he says, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Okay, so we're going to learn about we've already have. And when we come back next week or yeah, we'll come back next week and, and review. What are these birds about? What's this tree about? But the, uh, the dichotomous crowd here illustrates because the tree is the good thing. The birds is the not good thing. And uh, you've got the two sides here, the humiliated side and the rejoicing side. And again, he said in verse 20, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The kingdom of God is filled with sin. Right here, right now, until such time as it gets removed, we need, to, we need to be on guard against it. We need to understand how a congregation is damaged when leaven is not removed. 
when opponents are not humiliated, when opponents are, uh, you know, cooperated with, and let's get along, and let's, let's excuse what's, what's happening there. No, all you're doing there is just fostering leaven, and leaven, like gangrene, is going to spread. Mustard seed and leaven are two parables that were given in Matthew 13. And so if you have your notes from when we did episode 27, Galilean Ministry 27, Famous Parables of the Kingdom, then you can review those. If you've lost them or never had them in the first place, I have, uh, I have a handout right here. We can make some photocopies. How about that? Famous Parables of the Kingdom. So the mustard seed. That's what we have here in verses 18 and 19. The leaven. That's what we have here in verses 20 and 21. Two parables that were given in Matthew 13, verses, if you want to break them up this way, it's a little awkward, but verses 31 and 32, comma, 33. Okay? Now, why did I not just say 31 through 33? Because that's what stipulates the two parables. So you can draw a, uh, a parallel here. The mustard seed in verses 18 and 19 is matched up with there. You see what I did with this? And then the parable of the leaven given in this chapter, Luke 13 in verses 20 and 21, are uh, that material is contained there in Matthew 13:33. So you catch the drift on the All right. So mustard seed, Luke 13:18 and 19, and leaven, Luke 13:20 and 21 are two parables that were given in Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32 for the mustard seed, and verse 33 for the leaven. So not only were they given in that discourse, but they were given back to back, just like they're given here back to back. And so we have the notes there. Luke records these various parables at various times. We've taught this before. Why are the gospel accounts different? Are they, do they contradict? No, they complement. He records these various parables at various times in Jesus' ministry. For example, there were seven of them total that were given in Matthew 13. There's only two here. What happened to the other five? Well, some of them Luke recorded in chapter 8. In Luke 8, verses 4 through 18. Others he recorded here. I believe it clearly testifies to the multiple occasions and settings in which such messages were delivered. When Jesus encountered this dichotomous circumstance here, it became a trigger for him and it opened the door for him to be able to talk about mustard seed, enabled him to talk about leaven, because he was seeing it right there in that crowd. He was seeing a tree growing because he saw tremendous response on the part of those that were rejoicing with this woman. And so the kingdom was growing. The tree was growing. And at the same time the tree was growing, here come these birds. All right. Agents of the adversary. Prince of the power of the air. Where, where, what's the realm of the birds? Where do they fly? All right. And when uh, seed is snatched away from the roadside, uh, is it squirrels or mice or bunny rabbits that are doing that? What's... Removing the seed from the road when the sower sows the seed, it's the birds. All right. Anyway, in much of the many of the parables, birds are uh, representative of the adversary and what he's doing. And it's no different than what we what we do. Oftentimes, we might repeat a message, we might repeat a doctrine, we may review and give a message in multiple occasions, in multiple settings. All right, you know, pastors like uh, Pastor Cliff that are uh, candidating in different places, or guest speaking in different places, or doing a pulpit supply when pastors are out of town, or what have you. You know, you got an opportunity in various venues and various settings. You can go ahead and repeat a message that you've given. Say, you know, Pastor Cliff's taught the Book of James. Here in Austin, down in Smithville, down in Sweeney, over in Horseshoe Bay. I mean, you've got to have the book memorized at that point if you taught it all those different times, different places. Same thing with the Lord. Traveling to different towns, different uh, places, different times. Can repeat messages to different audiences. 
And it's not contradictory when Matthew records it during a Galilean ministry up on a mountain and Luke records it in the uh, last Judean and Perean ministry inside a synagogue. It's not a contradiction. He simply delivered the message multiple times. And in fact, that even uh, also explains uh, why when terminology changes, for example, Matthew 13 was exclusively kingdom of heaven. Here it's kingdom of God. Is that important? Is there a difference? In fact, it is particular to Luke. Particular to Luke is his use of kingdom of God rather than kingdom of heaven. And he does so in many places. He does so in many places. Remember, um, both Matthew and Mark, who are more fond of the kingdom of heaven terminology, uh, are both Jewish. Luke is a Gentile. Different audience, different um, background. Matthew only uses kingdom of God twice. He uses it in Matthew 12, 28 and 21, 43. He uses kingdom of heaven dozens of times. Likewise, Mark uses it three times. Mark 1, 15, Mark 4, 26, Mark 10, 14. But Luke uses it 13 times. It is a dominant expression in Luke, more so than kingdom of heaven. And since we have time, let's look at them. So is kingdom of God the same as kingdom of heaven? Is there a difference? Let me tell you, you know how many journal articles have been written on this very question? Now, there are passages where the terms are very clearly interchangeable. But there are other passages where you stop and say, wait a minute, is there a distinction? See, particularly important for us who are a part of the kingdom, and that kingdom is not yet on the earth. And we're saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right. At what point, when the kingdom does arrive on the earth, then can we say that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are realized in the, the one and the same application? All right, Luke 6.20. You see, right now, of course, the kingdom is not of this world. This world is still in darkness. This world is still under the domain of the adversary. Anyway, uh, Luke uses the term kingdom of God in the Beatitudes, where Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. And so then we find an interchangeable use. There'll be other passages that we find they're not so interchangeable. So turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Anyway, these are the Beatitudes in Luke 6 that parallel the Matthew 5 account there in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 10, he uses it in verse 9 and 11. We're almost done. Hold with me here for just a moment longer. Well, you know what? I guess we won't totally squeeze it in. Let's, uh, we can hold off for next week. Let me close with the... Uh, Church age passages. How about that? Romans fourteen seventeen. Because I think a lot of these are Christ speaking to his disciples in an Israel context. Let's see what Romans and First Corinthians have to say. Romans fourteen seventeen. Romans fourteen is the passage that gives us our mental attitude in grace towards our fellow brothers and sisters. And we're all growing in different rates and different capacities. We have faith convictions over certain uh, practical applications, and maybe our faith convictions are different. And if our faith conditions are different, or convictions are different, do we have the grace to allow our brother or sister to apply their faith conviction um, in their own priesthood? And we, we need to. And so we accept the one who's weak in faith. And we don't judge anyone anymore in verse 13, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. If you become aware that your sister has a trigger, don't pull the trigger, <laughs> right? She's got carnality buttons. Don't push them. Or she has a weak conscience over a certain um, realm. Don't put the stumbling block in front of that weak conscience. Apply love and don't insist on your liberty. 
I know and I am convinced in the Lord. I'm headed for verse 17 here on this. Nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So in their conviction, if it's wrong, it is wrong. It is wrong. Even if it's not wrong under your conviction. So verse 16 says, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And here's the, here's the uh, principle. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is the phrase, kingdom of God, in a church age application for you and I today. There it is. Okay, It's only a handful of, I mean, like you're looking at them. Romans 14, 17, 1 Corinthians 4, 20. And then we'll see what Revelation 12 is. It's not a church context, but you'll see these are the three places in the New Testament after the Gospels where kingdom of God takes place. I find it interesting that a whole branch of theology gets built upon kingdom emphasis when the New Testament doesn't seem to put the same stress on it that folks might want to put on it. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's, that should be our approach to the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 4.20. Hmm. It says in verse 18, Some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. These are the opponents that Paul has to deal with in Corinth. But I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, remember, always put your travel plans in his hands and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. What is it that's binding their minds? What is it that's uh, influencing their decisions and their attitudes? For the kingdom of God is not consistent words, but in power, the kingdom of God in power. What's empowering you? Is it the Holy Spirit or the flesh? Are you uh, operating under the filling and control of God the Holy Spirit? Or are you enslaved, being held captive by Satan to do his will? Say, so, well, that, that could never happen to me. Aha. Uh -huh. Come back on Sunday and learn something out of 2 Timothy chapter 2. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So it's twice now that Paul has used the kingdom of God with reference to believers in the angelic conflict and how we relate to one another. We relate to one another as fellow members of the kingdom of God, royal family of God in particular. And the only other place we have it in the New Testament is Revelation 12.10. And this is with respect to the dragon being cast down. War in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. They were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. See, the dragon still has access to heaven today. He's up there all the time, filing uh, accusation after accusation after accusation about, against us. And every last one of them, of course, is, is rejected because we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a new nature in Christ. Uh, he says, this believer is guilty. And uh, God the Father agrees with him. Yep, that believer is guilty, but Jesus Christ paid the penalty. Amen. How about that? But a day is coming when he's going to be cast out. I believe it coincides with the, with the trumpet that the archangel, when the Lord himself descends with the shout of the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, that that's when the warfare takes place and uh, Satan and his angels are permanently evicted, never again to enter into that heaven. We have our privacy for our wedding supper, for our marriage with our husband. And so the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Anyway, uh, three short verses there. It's an awful, scanty skeleton to try to hang an entire kingdom, dominion, theology kind of framework on, right? And yet, 
All sorts of folks are, are preaching it the way they're preaching it, stressing it the way they're stressing it. So, uh, in any event, next week we will come back, and uh, really that's the outline for, for event 17, but we will come back and review what those parables are about. We'll teach the concepts there, review what the parables are about, so that we understand kingdom of heaven in our day, mystery state, so that we understand the, the uh, reality of our heavenly citizenship and what it is we're ambassadors for. Father, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for your grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.